0: So here we are in the book of Jude. This letter comes from Judas, but Christians have called him Jude for short because the name Judas has such evil associations. Jude was originally called Judas Thaddeus. It was shortened to Jude by English translators of the New Testament so that he wouldn't be confused with Judas, Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Jesus. And Jude 1 begins, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. To those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. So it's addressed to those who have been called out of the world, who are now loved and who are being kept for presentation to King Jesus. Jude was actually one of the brothers of Jesus and lived with him growing up. But he thought Jesus was crazy and he didn't believe that he was the Son of God during his ministry. He didn't believe until after he rose from the dead. So why didn't he say, I'm the brother of Jesus? In effect, he introduces himself by saying, I'm a brother of my brother, talking about James, and a slave to the other one, talking about Jesus. But that was his attitude. He knows Jesus bought him. There was a time when he was one of the people saying Jesus was beside himself, which was their way of saying that he's schizophrenic, Judas and James still didn't believe in Jesus, their own brother, even at the cross. And this is why Jesus entrusted his mother to someone else outside the family. He told John to look after his mother. It was after the resurrection, when Jesus appeared to them, that both James and Jude believed. Very few people quote from this particular book, except for the last two verses, which everybody likes. This particular letter is basically negative, almost from the beginning to the end. It's stern and serious, so it's no surprise that it's often skipped over. We really want the Bible to encourage us, and we want to be uplifted. But the reason for this letter is because although it's important to tell people what's true, it's also important to tell people what's false. But the cardinal virtue of our age that we live in is tolerance. Don't tell anyone that they're wrong, right? Tell everybody they're right. Be like Alice in Wonderland. We all win and we all get prizes. All roads lead to God. That's the mood of our generation, and it's infected Christians. And unless we're willing, like Jude, to say that's wrong as well as that's right, we'll lose the battle for the faith from inside the church, not from outside. The church can be destroyed from inside, and that's what we need to be concerned about. This was Jude's concern. There are two dangers. First, legalism, that's too strict and narrow-minded. And second, liberalism that's too casual and broad-minded. Legalism is the Pharisee, liberalism is the Sadducee. The Pharisees plotted to kill Jesus, and the Sadducees achieved it. Legalism is making rules for other people and imposing standards on them from outside so that they can perform outwardly when their heart may not actually be in it at all. We all do this. We even conform in clothing. I'm free to wear a dress to church or to wear jeans. I'm free. Spiritually, Think how rules are made up in the church. Some churches might say, we don't dance in our church, or we don't drink in our church, we don't wear makeup in our church, we don't do this, we don't do that. Legalism. Now if the Holy Spirit tells you not to do something, that's an entirely different matter. But these sorts of things are legalism. But it's not legalism to keep the instructions of God. Legalism is when we, as human beings, make rules for other people how easily we make rules, which are the traditions of men rather than the word of God. And I want to give you an example. So let's say a mother says to a little boy, sit down. And he doesn't. So she says it again, sit down. And he still doesn't. So then she lifts her hand like she's going to smack him and says, sit down or I'll, and he sits down. Then he whispers under his breath, the outside of me is sitting down, but the inside is still standing up. And that's exactly what legalism produces. People conform, but it's dead. The other danger is more prominent these days, and that's the danger of becoming too casual and broad-minded. When the fear of God becomes a phobia, it develops into legalism. But when it's absent, liberalism takes over, and it lowers Christ's standards. I really wish that people would stop thinking that they're safe once they're called, loved, and kept. The expression, once saved, always saved, is used. And what people mean is once safe, always safe. And it's a dangerous thing. You won't be safe until you're dead. Those three things, called, loved, and kept, they demand a response. You are called, but that doesn't make you safe unless you come and then you go when you're called. You're loved, which calls for a response of love. You're to love the Lord God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. You're kept, which also calls for a response of keeping yourself. You never want to build a foundation on half of the truth of the Bible, taking bits and leaving the rest. The same Paul who said, I'm persuaded that he's able to keep what I've committed, also said in the same letter, I have kept the faith in him. And this letter in Jude says you are kept and keep yourself in the love of God. We see in one of the examples that Jude gives that all who came out of Egypt, who had been under the blood of the Lamb, who had come through the Red Sea, out of two million, only two got into the Promised Land. He tells us that this is an example and a warning to us. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, he uses the exact same Old Testament incident to warn us that what happened to the people under the Old Covenant can actually happen to the people under the New Covenant as well. Let's read it. And this is New Testament. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written... The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And I want to stop there to just point out, right there we see a definition of idolatry. And it says, basically, people just living for themselves, their own pleasure. They just sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. They were just caring about the cares of the world. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. These are warnings of those who have shipwrecked their faith, people who didn't keep it up. In other words, they just didn't keep going. Jude tells his readers why he's writing. He says, Dear friends, I had been eagerly planning to write to you about the salvation that we share. But now I find that I must write about something else, urging you to defend the faith that God has entrusted once for all time to his holy people. I say this because some ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches, saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. The condemnation of such people was recorded long ago for they have denied our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So he's saying, I fully intended to write to you another kind of message, but you've got a problem and I'm concerned about it. You're in real danger and the danger is due to the fact that people have snuck into your fellowship and they're spoiling it. They've wormed their way in, they came in subtly, you didn't even notice the influence. Men's opinion will never set anyone free. When the gospel is watered down, neutralized, or compromised, it's ineffective because it's only truth that sets people free. So Jude is saying that the first thing that they were doing was twisting the grace of God into an excuse for immorality. Grace means no bad deeds can keep you out and no good deeds can get you in. God says, I accept you as you are for the sake of my son, Jesus Christ. But the word grace has been terribly misunderstood, and that's what Jude is writing about. It's been assumed that because God accepts you as you are, that it doesn't matter how you live after that. That God's grace basically means you can live any way you want and He'll forgive you. The fact is, the word grace has been twisted to mean that there's nothing to worry about. Grace is not God saying you can live any way you want and I'll forgive you. That's an abuse of God's grace. It makes the grace of God an excuse for immorality, which is exactly what was happening in the church that Jude wrote to We've all taken the grace of God and abused it this way because we thought, well, it's all right. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No fear of him doing anything to us now. It's okay. I'm sorry, you know, but it's not too serious because I'm a child of God. That's a dangerous mindset. We need to look at God's word for what it actually tells us. And there are some stern warnings about it here in the book of Jude. Hebrews chapter 10 talks about insulting the spirit of grace by continuing in willful sin after you have received grace. The sentimental view of God doesn't believe that God would destroy, doesn't believe God would judge. In Romans 11, the Apostle Paul said, Notice how God is both kind and severe. He's severe towards those who disobeyed, but kind to you if you continue to trust in his kindness. But if you stop trusting, you will also be cut off. Again, this is the New Testament. There's a subtle form of this abuse of grace that started creeping into churches in the 80s with the teaching in the name of Jesus that you have a duty to love yourself. Books started coming out on this this particular subject, and Jesus gave two commandments in the Bible, the great commandments, and it was love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And some clever people said, ah, as yourself. That means it's all right to love yourself. And they made it into three commandments, love God, love your neighbor, and yourself. That's how it started, and then it moved on to enjoy yourself. God wants you to be happy. The grace of God was never intended to lead you to anything about yourself. Jesus never said love yourself. He never said express yourself, indulge yourself, enjoy yourself. The only thing he said about yourself was deny yourself. Come with me. The self-centeredness of the outside world has gotten in among us, and we've become preoccupied with our own problems, with our self-expression. Finding me, me, me. And Jude's message is saying, this is a travesty. Your forgiveness is not at all for that. Grace is not for all that. It's free to you, but it cost everything to Jesus. God can only accept you as you are because Jesus paid for it with his life. And we can never take that lightly. And notice that it's the grace of God and the person of Christ that they twisted. So they're not unchristian people that he's speaking of here. They believe in God and his grace. They believe in Jesus, and that's how they sneak in and worm their way in. They use the term, the grace of God. The main danger to the church is people who use the right language with the wrong meaning. So he says, I want to remind you, though you already know these things, that Jesus first rescued the nation of Israel from Egypt, but later he destroyed those who did not remain faithful. And I remind you of the angels who did not stay within the limits of authority God gave them, but left the place where they belonged. God has kept them securely chained in prisons of darkness, waiting for the great day of judgment. And don't forget about Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring towns, which were filled with immorality and every kind of sexual perversion. Those cities were destroyed by fire and serve as a warning of the eternal fire of God's judgment. So... Verse 5 here says, But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Jude is saying here, I'm using things you already know to prove to you that God will punish those who purposely continue to sin as a habit. They already knew about the apostasy in Israel. They knew that only two people made it into the promised land out of two million. He only needed to remind them. The reason God destroyed the Jews before they got to the Promised Land was because they wouldn't trust Him after all He had done for them. The fact that this example is used by Jude and also by Paul as an example to Christians means that Christians could fail to make it. The first lesson is taken from the history of Israel and it's taught by those unbelievers who died in the wilderness. When God delivered the children of Israel from Egypt, He did this with many miracles. They were still destroyed in the wilderness because they apostatized from the living God. They started out well, because the Bible says, And they were all baptized into Moses, in the cloud and in the sea, and did all eat the same spiritual meat, and did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. That's 1 Corinthians 10, verses 2-4. But they responded with unbelief defecting from the faith, even to the worship of an idol of their own making. Let's look back at a couple of scriptures that help us further understand this. The Bible says in Numbers, you will all die here in this wilderness, not a single one of you, 20 years old and older, who has complained against me. Hebrews, and to whom was God speaking when he took an oath that they would never enter his rest? Wasn't it to the people who disobeyed him? So we see that because of their unbelief, they were not able to enter his rest. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will these people reject me? And how long will they not believe me with all the signs which I have performed among them? I'll strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. And here in Numbers, Because all these men who have seen my glory and the signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have put me to the test now all these ten times and have not heeded my voice, They certainly shall not see the land of which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who rejected me see it. And Hebrews tells us why they were not able to enter the promised land, and it was because of unbelief. They obviously believed in God. He had parted the Red Sea. He had fed them with manna from heaven. He'd followed them in a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. They actually literally believed in him, but they did not trust him and believed what he had told them, even after all he'd done for them and this is why they were destroyed. The word believe in the Greek New Testament is a present, continuous tense. It means to go on doing something, not just to do it once. This is what unbelief means. God doesn't really mean it. It started in the Garden of Eden when Satan said to Eve, you won't surely die. The suggestion is God's not really like that. He wouldn't do that to you. He's just trying to frighten you away from something he doesn't want you to do. Unbelief is reading the Bible and reading letters like Jude and saying God doesn't really mean it or I'm sure he wouldn't punish me. Unbelief says God didn't really mean it when he said the wages of sin is death. God didn't really mean you can shipwreck your faith. God didn't really mean that having tasted the powers of the age to come and then turning your back on Jesus, there can be no repentance whatsoever for that. If we're in that place where we're reading God's word and not believing his word, we need to repent. We need to repent because this is what we see happen to the children of Israel and why they were destroyed in the wilderness because they didn't believe what God said. Jude goes on to say, in the same way, these people who claim authority from their dreams live immoral lives, defy authority, and scoff at supernatural beings. But even Michael, one of the mightiest of the angels, did not dare accuse the devil of blasphemy, but simply said, The Lord rebuke you. This took place when Michael was arguing with the devil about Moses' body. I I want to pause there because I think that's really cool. This is not written about anywhere else in the Bible, but here we see that Moses' body, it was important to God to bury Moses because it's an honorable thing to do for someone, to give them a proper burial. And he actually sent the archangel Michael to bury Moses. And when Michael got there, Satan's already standing there, so he had to argue with him over the body because obviously Satan was probably accusing him of being a murderer and accusing him and wanting his body to just rot on the ground, but God was wanting him to be buried properly, and he did bury him. I just think that's beautiful. So, moving on. But these people scoff at things they do not understand. Like unthinking animals, they do whatever their instincts tell them, and so they bring about their own destruction. What sorrow awaits them? For they follow in the footsteps of Cain, who killed his brother, like Balaam. They deceive people for money, and like Korah, they perish in their rebellion. He mentions Cain, who also thought God wouldn't punish him. And we see this in Genesis 4-7, when God says to Cain, I'm warning you, if you don't do what's right, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is to have you, but you must rule over it. That applies to us today also. We must rule over it. God has given us power over sin through the indwelling of His Holy Spirit. He's given us the ability to overcome temptation. And we do that through the washing of the Word, through the renewal of our mind in the Word. We have to continually abide in Christ. We abide in Him through staying in His Word. That's our fellowship in the Word. The Bible says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus Christ is the Word. That's how we abide, and that's how we fellowship with him, is to stay in it. When these people eat with you in your fellowship meals, commemorating the Lord's love, they are like dangerous reefs that can shipwreck you. They are like shameless shepherds who care only for themselves. They are like clouds blowing over the land without giving any rain. They are like trees in autumn that are doubly dead, for they bear no fruit and have been pulled up by the roots. They are like wild waves of the sea, churning up the foam of their shameful deeds they are like wandering stars doomed forever to blackest darkness Enoch who lived in the seventh generation after Adam, prophesied about these people. He said, Listen, the Lord is coming with countless thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment on the people of the world. He will convict every person of all the ungodly things they have done and for all the insults that ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. These people are grumblers and complainers, living only to satisfy their desires. They brag loudly about themselves, and they flatter others to get what they want. So I want to stop here and look at some of the descriptions he uses of these um, wolves in sheep's clothing. He calls them clouds without water. So basically he's saying they have appearance but no substance. They're full of claims but they never produce anything spiritual. They're doubly dead or as the New King James Version says, twice dead. Meaning that they're born once, which were all born into sin once, and then were made alive in Christ when we receive Him, and then they're dead again by being apostates, which the Bible says there's no hope for. This is why this is saying here that they bear no fruit, because they've been pulled up by the roots. It also refers to them as wandering stars. Your life can't be guided by a wandering star. They're not stable, they don't stay the course. Jude is saying that you should have expected men like these in the church. It wasn't unexpected. The prophets and the apostles told us that it would happen. We've been warned to be careful and to watch out and to guard our doctrine closely. Finally, Jude speaks about what we need to do about them. The first thing he tells us to do when this situation comes, when corruption is set in and when the faith is being watered down, when anything goes and people are abusing the grace of God, when all this is happening, the first thing he says to do is something about yourself. Make sure about yourself. Make sure that you're what you ought to be yourself. And in the little bit of advice he gives to us, that we're to keep ourselves in the love of God, to pray in the Spirit, to wait patiently for the coming of the Lord. He's primarily saying that you must be right with yourself before you can help set other people right. He says, praying in the Spirit. That's one of the great gifts of God that he wants to give you when he baptizes you in his Spirit, so that you can pray in the Spirit when you don't know what to pray for when you don't know what to say next or how to keep going. It's generally a gift that we're instructed to use in private. It's between you and God and the Bible says it's for your edification. And if you want that gift, the baptism of the Spirit and the gift of praying in the Spirit, just ask the Lord. Ask the Holy Spirit. And begin to worship Him and just ask Him. He says that He will not withhold gifts from His children and he who asks will receive. He also says to keep yourself in the love of God. It's one thing to fall in love, and it's another thing to stay in love. We know that marriage has to be cultivated. Love doesn't just happen. The simplest way to cultivate is to consider the wishes of the person that you love. Jesus said, When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. So do you want to stay in my love? Is basically what he's saying. Then do what I tell you. It's as simple as that. Stay in love with the Lord, and false teachers can't touch you. And you must show mercy to those whose faith is wavering. Rescue others by snatching them from the flames of judgment. Show mercy to still others, but do so with great caution, hating the sin that contaminates their lives. Jude mentions three groups. Those who are still wavering between the true faith and what other teachers are saying, and then those who are on the verge of falling for it and going into it, and then those who have gotten into it and have been contaminated by it. So notice here that we're not talking about the false teachers anymore. We're talking about the victims of the false teachers. Those wavering are the ones that are saying, well, well, this sounds right. They're quoting the Bible because you can prove anything with the Bible when you quote sound bites. That's why we have to look at context. That's why we have to read all of the Word to understand. And we have to stay in this Word and let the Holy Spirit teach us. We have a solemn duty, though, once we understand the Word, to talk to those that are in that group and to talk them out of it when, they, when they're being deceived. But as you talk to them, it says we need to do it with gentleness. In the book of Acts, there's a story of Aquila and Priscilla. They had heard a preacher named Apollos and he was a little bit off on some of the doctrine. He knew the scriptures, but he didn't fully understand the doctrines on baptism or the Holy Spirit. So the Bible says that they corrected him and they helped him learn properly, but they did it in a gentle and in a kind way. So the second group of people, they're just going the wrong way. And the Bible says to be a little more drastic, to snatch them from the flames before they get burnt. The Lord will tell you when it's time to snatch someone. We don't need to just try to go around telling people they're going to hell. You know, you'll know when the Holy Spirit's leading you. But it's more than just talking at this point. The Lord will give you wisdom. If you saw an infant crawling towards flames in a fire, what would you do? Talk? Never. Never. You're going to snatch them from the fire. The third group that it's talking about, these are people that have already been contaminated by this doctrine. They already believe it. And this is the riskiest situation because you can get contaminated if you're not careful. And so the Bible's telling us to go in with love for the sinner but hate for the sin. You've got to go in with such a love for them and such a fear of being contaminated by them that you're afraid of their stained underwear. And I say that because that's literally the translation of the Greek word that's used, which means undergarment. It's almost as if God's saying, beware of AIDS. Be scared of getting contaminated, but don't give them up. Show them mercy, which means more than they deserve. You received mercy, so give them mercy, with the hope that you might actually save some of them. The New King James Version says, And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. So in the midst of all of this, how can I keep myself in the love of God? Fix your eyes on the Lord. Jude finishes this up by saying, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, he is able to keep me from stumbling. There's a proper balance, though, to this. And I absolutely know he'll keep me, but only if I will let him. Only if I keep myself in his love. He has the ability to keep me from stumbling, but I must give him the opportunity to use his ability. That's why Jude teaches in this letter both keep yourself in God's love and that he's able to keep you from falling. But that doesn't mean he will. The Bible tells us that there'll be many Christians who'll stand in the presence of God embarrassed with shame that they didn't let him do it. But those who'll let him do his work will not only stand without any fault, they'll stand with great joy. Even Satan has to ask God permission before he can touch you. Read the book of Job. He can keep you. Hallelujah. So in closing, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen.